Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words. In partnership with The Honor Project, we've brought this podcast back at a time when our nation needs these stories more than ever. This episode is sponsored by The Great Courses Plus, a streaming service with an extensive library to learn about military history or pretty much anything else that interests you. Visit thegreatcoursesplus.com warriors for a free month. Warriors in Their Own Words is our attempt to present an unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who wear our country's uniform. Thank you for listening, and by doing so, honoring those who have served. Last episode, we heard from Lieutenant Bill Story, and today we're finishing that interview. Lieutenant Story served during World War II in the joint American and Canadian First Special Service Force, also known as the Devil's Brigade. While 2nd Regiment made the attack, 1st Battalion, 2nd Regiment made the attack, and 2nd Battalion under Colonel Moore made the first one. The approach march, uh, we got off trucks that were probably 10 or 12 miles away from the, the foot of Monte La Defensa. And we walked through the mist and the rain, sometimes through mud, sometimes on roads, to get to the base of that, of that mountain and go up. The rain stopped during the night of that first night before the major attack, and we had a chance to dry out somewhat. We started up the hill the next night, and uh, it wasn't raining, but uh, by the time we had made it over the top, uh, up to the top, and it had achieved our goal, uh, then it started to rain, and it became very foggy and misty and drizzly, uh, and we went up there with no raincoats. We had ponchos. Uh, we had no shelter halves. You could fasten two ponchos together to make a sort of tent that would keep the rain off you. But after we'd been up there for two or three days and been out on patrol and fended off the, the counterattacks, the beginnings of the counterattacks, we, um, we were miserable. We were really miserable. I, I still live with a kidney problem that, that relates to the top of Monte La Defensa and being cold and wet for six days. Frederick went up and he looked at his men and he, I'm sure, he said, now what can I do to help? They've got to stay here and we still have to take Monte Ramatania and we've got to help the Brits on the left flank. What can I do? And, and Frederick liked a good drink. And so the thing that came to his mind was uh, maybe we can get some whiskey up here. And then he, he saw the sodden condition of the weapons and he, his mind went back to what we had learned in the Aleutian Islands that uh, 
we were all issued condoms, part of the soldier's supply. We didn't have any use for condoms on, on Amchitka or on Kiska, but what we found was that they made great piece of, of equipment to keep the barrels of your guns dry and uh, also to keep your personal effects, like your wallets and so on, from soaking. So he called up uh, Paul Adams, who is his, our executive officer, and, and asked uh, Colonel Adams to pass word back to Colonel Wickham, who was at our base camp in Santa Maria, to uh, go to Fifth Army and ask the supply officer for 10 or 15 cases of whiskey and, and a, about a gross of condoms. So uh, Ken Wickham went trotting up the road to, to Fifth Army headquarters and he, to see the supply officer of Fifth Army. And uh, this fellow said, you want condoms and whiskey on the top of that mountain? What are you doing, having a party? Uh, where are you finding the women? This sort of back and forth. Absolutely not. And Wickham, bless him, you know, the word had come down that this was what Colonel Frederick wanted. So he persisted, and he finally he said to this supply officer, who might possibly have been a brigadier general, why don't you go in and ask the general? And by that, he meant Mark Clark, who was the commander of the 5th Army. So this officer went in and asked Clark, and Clark's response was, listen to the story, and, and he said, well, he took the mountain, didn't he? Give him what he wants. So the next night, carried by the, the service battalion and by fellows from 3rd from Regiment, came uh, cases of whiskey and packages of condoms. I can remember going out to 1st to Battalion, and these miserable fellows just looked miserable. We were reduced to wringing water out of moss up there to get drinking water. And it had been raining and cold and everything I've said. And I gave a bottle of whiskey to, to uh, Stan Waters and Major Gray, who was the executive officer of 2nd Regiment, was there. He was so bad, he had a cold in the throat, he could barely whisper. And he said, thanks, Sergeant. So uh, Stan Waters, who later became commander of the Canadian Army, said to me, uh, Bill... You were the best sight in my whole life. You came up that trail carrying a bottle of whiskey and handing it to me. And we all got a nip or two. And that was enough. But it was the thought, you know, that our colonel would think of these things in order to help maintain our spirits because it was, that was a hard thing to do up there. I was a part of one of three patrols that were sent out with soldiers of the 36th Division to explore a feasible way up Monte La Defensa. The thing that struck me most about those 36th Infantry Sergeant and, and the patrol was the high level of fear. You could just sense it, you know, and it was foggy. And, uh, well, we can't go any further, you know, we're up too far up. And uh, I didn't see anything. When the fog lifted a little bit, then I, I saw the bodies of the soldiers who had 
tried to make that attempt. And so I had a better understanding of why they were fearful. But they were really fearful. You could look up and see that the, the tracer was going well above your head, even though it was cracking. It was going well above your head. There was nothing to be fearful about. And that's because part of our training here at Fort Harrison was, was live fire training, where we literally crawled uh, under barbed wire. And this is standard training. No, but we, we were one of the pioneers of this. Crawled under barbed wire, which was, you know, large enough to permit your butt to get through uh, if you didn't raise it too much. And uh, where machine guns on fixed lines were firing over your head. If somebody points a gun at you, you become apprehensive, to say the least. Someone is shooting at you with intent to kill you. You not only become fearful, but you become very angry. And the anger oftentimes uh, carried you. You had to ride over the fear. And actually the fear was, was pumping into you to make you alert and more aware of what you had to do to accomplish the, the mission. And uh, fellows, for instance, who, whose job it turned out to be to, to take a grenade and throw it in a machine gun nest, they were fearful. But their training overcame their fear. Their discipline overcame their fear. Even though they knew that it was a possibility they'd be shot dead. We're not inclined as individuals to be able to kill each other. You have to have some degree of training. Or, like so many of the killings we've seen here in the public, you have to be aberrated. And in wartime, many soldiers, while they pointed their rifles at an enemy, never pulled the trigger, never centered the rifle on, on the soldier. This is particularly became evident as World War II wore on, and now the training is much more intensive. But back then, they discovered to their dismay that many of, of the infantry soldiers just did not fire their weapons. And part of it was distaste for killing another person. The way they were brought up, the laws and so on of, of both our countries. So you had to be trained to kill. And you had to be motivated to kill. And of course, one of the best motivators was to have someone shoot at you. And then the adrenaline really flowed. But it's difficult to look down a rifle and sight in a German soldier uh, that he doesn't know that you see him and uh, then to proceed to shoot him, pull the trigger. You know, the Germans were highly trained in this. One of the German techniques was, if they had to withdraw, was to leave snipers in back. And we cleared a lot of snipers off Monte La Defensa. And I can recall going back, uh, I had to go down to the aid station and come back up, and I can recall uh, I was with a party, and all of a sudden, out of the corner of my eye, there was movement up in a line of rocks. And I shouted to the party, I think there's, a, there's movement up there that may be a sniper. So everybody shouted, and everybody looked and pointed, and then I saw the movement of this 
body moved slowly back out of sight. And then we started on our way again. And as we started, out this thing came. And that happened three times. The third time he gave up because we were alert and we were ready to to shoot at him. But typically, as when I went out through third company, in the morning after I got my commission, that sniper there had killed already killed two forcemen. So it, it does take training to kill your fellow person. I went up Monty Law Defense as a staff sergeant and came down as a first lieutenant, Canadian style. Uh, after uh, Colonel Williamson had come back up the hill, uh, after conferring with Colonel Frederick, I was around the corner from, from his headquarters, down the slope a little bit, and I had teamed up with Captain Tom Gordon, uh, another Canadian, uh, and we'd made a sort of a shelter half by putting our ponchos together and propping them up with rocks. And we had a can of Sterno, and we were busy heating up a can of coffee. We were no sooner got it to the point where it was steaming than uh, the colonel's runner comes down, and Patterson says, uh, Sergeant Story, uh, the colonel wants you up right away. And uh, so I groaned, and I, and I started to crawl out the tent, and in the course of crawling out of the tent, I dislodged it, and the rainwater went down uh, Tommy Gordon's neck, and I also kicked over the coffee in the process of getting out, caught hell from him, uh, and uh, went on up, and uh, Colonel Williamson was waiting for me up there, and he said, uh, uh, Sergeant Story, by virtue of the authority granted me by the Canadian government, I hereby promote you to uh, subaltern, or first lieutenant. And uh, I was taken aback. I literally said, what, sir? And he said, you idiot, didn't you hear me? I just made you an officer. You are now a... And I said, oh, um, well, uh, what do I do now? And he said, you tear off those damn stripes to start with. And we had to get Patterson's knife to tear off my stripes. And he said, now go find a bar. Uh, because we wore American insignia. So I said, a gold bar, sir? He said, no. Don't you know that uh, a second lieutenant in the Canadian Army is not qualified to serve overseas? You are a first lieutenant. Uh, he said, I'll, probably Captain Gordon has a bar. So I went down and, and uh, <laughs> I knocked on the tent and spilled more water on, on Tom Gordon and and uh, I said, Tom, the colonel, the colonel said I should get a silver bar from you. And he said, what the hell do you mean calling me by my first name? I'm an officer. And I said, well, so am I. The colonel says you're going to give me one of your, your silver bars. So he took the bar off his collar and gave it to me. He wasn't a I was wrong in saying that he was a captain. He was a very senior lieutenant. So he gave me that silver bar off his shirt. And... Uh, there's a sequel to that. I had to go out the next morning to go on out and talk to Stan Waters and, and Major Gray. And uh, on the way, I, I was going under the escarpment so I wouldn't be revealed over top. And I'm coming to a, a V-shape where it was possible to climb up over onto the top part. And as I got there, um, a voice 
came down to me and said, don't go any further. And I looked up and there was a, a friend of mine in third company, section sergeant. And he said, we've lost two men who crawled through that V in an effort to get, there's a sniper and we don't, we haven't caught him yet. So he, he put a hand down and, and helped me climb up that part. And uh, then I said to him, uh, hey, uh, do you notice anything different about me? And he looked around and he said, where the hell are your stripes? And I said, well, look at this. You know, I took this silver bar and I flipped it up like this. I said, the colonel just made me an officer. And he said, that dumb SOB, doesn't he know any better than that? <laughs> so then I went on out to see, see Waters and Major Gray. And Gray was aware that this was coming up because I had been considered for commissioning while we were right here, but there wasn't time to send me off to an OCS or a Canadian training school. I was the first uh, enlisted man in the force to be commissioned in the field, to be followed, incidentally, by another Canadian from 1st Regiment who was also from Winnipeg, the two of us. And we were the first two names to appear on orders as being commissioned in the field. On the beachhead, I was the intelligence officer for 3rd Regiment, and while I passed word that force headquarters wanted intelligence patrols to go out that night, I passed that word to the battalion commanders, and they took care of doing that. The German prisoners that they took didn't come back through me. They went directly down to force headquarters to be interrogated by the only man in the force who had the capability of, of speaking effective German for interrogation purposes and that was Finn Roll, our Norwegian-American intelligence officer. My recollection of, of the Black Devil was that I heard the report that a while on the beachhead, that a German uh, sergeant or officer or something had been captured, and he had a, a diary on him, and in the diary there was reference to the black devils, uh, we never know when they're coming um, and uh, whatever else that said of that. But there was a report that just sort of flashed around and it presumably came from Finn Roll or from Bob Burhans. And that's, that's all I, I really knew about it. We really took to that because it gave us some knowledge of, of how the Germans viewed what we were doing that we were accomplishing our mission of keeping them apprehensive. And it gave us a nickname that I think the fellows enjoyed having. And not everybody was, was positive on this. Uh, the senior officers weren't, weren't that uh, approving. They, they didn't necessarily like this Black Devil stuff. But for the rank and file, this gave us a tag which was different. Regardless of uh, where the story originated from, it gave the, the soldiers of the force, the force men, something of which to be proud, some indication for them that they had had an impact on the German soldiers that were opposing them, and uh, that the things they did, like blacking their faces, and the clothes we wore, those baggy mountain ski pants, we call them, were recognized by the enemy. 
And it, it, was, it was a fillip to our, our pride. And it helped our esprit. I really don't care where it came from because it was picked up and the guys ran with it. I think it was while we were at Santa Maria uh, in the southern part of Italy where we were training for the invasion of southern France that, that a first regiment fellow who was a sketch artist drew the original Black Devil. And that was widely distributed throughout the force. The Black Devil that this uh, artist of first regiment did hasn't changed basically over the 50 years or 60 years that have occurred since that time. And that was the Black Devil that was sent out in V-mail uh, in December of 44 after the force had broken up. It was a logo, uh, picked up as, as a logo by the, uh, my predecessor, the, who was the secretary of the Force Association, and appeared on the letterhead. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Our listeners are clearly curious about history and about the world. So I'm excited to share with you a great app I recently discovered. The Great Courses Plus is a streaming service with a huge library of classes on pretty much everything you can think of, including military history. I recently watched one of their classes called 1066, The Year That Changed Everything. It's about the Battle of Hastings and the Norman Conquest of England. I learned so much about Norman and Anglo-Saxon warriors and battlefield tactics at the time. It was more than military history, though. I learned about powerful noble families, politically charged marriages, and tense succession crises. It's so easy to use the Great Courses Plus app, and you can watch anything from their extensive library anytime and anywhere. And right now, our listeners get a free month of unlimited access to the entire library. Visit thegreatcoursesplus.com slash warriors to sign up for a free month. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash warriors. And the link is in our show notes. Now, back to warriors in their own words. Well, let me say, first of all, that the Devil's Brigade is a good, entertaining, World War II-style movie. And uh, that's shown by the number of times that it still appears, even though it's a 1960s movie, it still appears all over the world uh, two or three times a year. But as a piece of history, it's sheer nonsense. It's Hollywood, 100% Hollywood approach to the first special service force. First of all, right here in, at Fort Harrison, there were not two separate elements, a Canadian element and an American element headed by a Canadian officer and an American officer. We were totally integrated. Second, 
The American soldiers of the force are depicted in the Devil's Brigade as being rejects from the stockades, uh, crooks and criminals, elements in the U.S. Army, ne'er-to-wells. That was not the case. These men, the Americans' selection teams went out to American locations and, and selected men just as they did in Canada. It may be true that, that some people were sent by their commanders, but I have a feeling that a lot of those people may possibly have wound up in the service battalion. But we didn't have uh, that kind of element, that dirty dozen aspect, which they gave to the Devil's Brigade. Entirely untrue. It was absolutely ridiculous to bring uh, soldiers together from two countries and then pit them against each other, especially since we'd already been integrated. That was nonsense. It wouldn't have produced the kind of force that, that we eventually had. So the movie was entirely wrong. The movie was similarly wrong in showing that the Canadians marched in with a bagpiper. Absolute nonsense. Uh, they showed that the Canadians were rigid, you know, very highly controlled and drilled. That, too, was nonsense. We were ordinary soldiers. We were trained soldiers. Uh, and we enjoyed the people that we worked with. But in the force, the door, the gate swung both ways for several months. And those who didn't want to stay left, those who were not wanted, were thrown out. A number of years ago, when I had just moved to Roanoke, Virginia, from uh, northern Virginia, I was asked to talk to a service club uh, I forget the name of it, but an organization like Kiwanis or, or Rotary, about the Special Service Force. So I told the story of the force, how we started and what we did and so on. And when I came to the day of the breakup, I broke up. I couldn't continue. It took me half a minute or so to bring myself under control. And even as, as I talk to you now, that still causes a clutch in the throat. It's still with me. The, the impact of, of learning about the breakup and the fact that we were going back to the Canadian Army and leaving the rest of, the, of our friends there, uh, and I've, I was very sad. To say goodbye to a fellow like Glenn Lee, uh, who was uh, my intelligence sergeant. Uh, we'd gone to the U.S. Army Intelligence School together, was very hard. I didn't break down and cry, but but it was hard for both of us. We've acknowledged since that it was a very difficult experience to go through, to break that strong cord that we had between ourselves. After the breakup, uh, we went our various ways in the Canadian and the U.S. Army. We Canadians would continue to get word about uh, where the most of the Americans were in this 474th Infantry Regiment separate. Our Canadian adjutant kept a, a complete roster, accurate roster on the Canadians of the force, and this was done on the American side. Right after 
the war, uh, a letter went out to everybody uh, saying that an association was going to be formed. We couldn't wait to get back together. And we couldn't wait to get back together here in Helena. We had to raise money for the uh, rest of the building of our monument here in Helena. So that was the start of an organization. We uh, also had the fact that uh, by 1947, Colonel Burhans had written his history of the force. And this book had been made available uh, to all members of the force. And I'm not really sure in my memory when that was distributed, but the fact that it was coming was known to us. So when when the word came out that, that uh, we were going to have a reunion in Helena, I couldn't wait to get back to see Helena and to see all these guys again. And that included the Canadians because we'd gone our separate ways. I was in university. 1947 was our first reunion. We have met every year since that time. One year in Canada, one year in the United States. We've come together for a week of remembrances and talking, memorial services and so on. Our most recent reunion was at Fort Bragg because U.S. Army Special Forces are our direct descendants in the U.S. Army. Couldn't wait to visit with the friends we'd made here in the city of Helena. Couldn't wait to to see our friends in the force. One of the disappointments was that not everybody came. But when we found out that, that whether we were from 1st Regiment, 3rd Regiment, or Service Battalion, we were brothers, really. And standing around the monument and realizing the history, where did the money come from? was money that we we raised to help replace the cruiser Helena. It was our monument, and it was a rare thing in the United States that it had been built with our own money, and we would run it in perpetuity. And we dedicated it there. We had our, our chaplains there. That was moving. The fact that we, we could march up, you know, form up and, and march in front of it in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd Regiment Service Battalion and Force Headquarters, that had meaning. To see some of the fellows who had left in a bad condition from our combat actions in Italy, to see them whole again. I hadn't seen them since, in my case, uh, I saw Ted Johnson. I hadn't seen Ted since since he walked down Monte Lotta Fence. I saw Stony Wines. I hadn't seen Stony, even while we were still in the force, until uh, we saw him here. Coming back to the Helena scene, that helped launch the association. One other thing we did, uh, Jack Akerst, who was the senior Canadian officer, said, the war's over. Let's forget about ranks. Let's call ourselves by our first names so we don't go through the rest of our lives speaking of Colonel this and Colonel that. I don't want it. And so that's what we did. 
And it even got to the point where I, I felt free to, to call, uh, by then, General Frederick Bob. You know, never thought that day would come. And that's affected me, incidentally, in talking with other general officers. I, I, I believe in using the first name as much as possible. We met in Vancouver at a, a uh, reunion, and Larry Story, who was from 5th Company, 2nd Regiment, who is a long, long distant cousin of mine, uh, was the chairman. And he had the opportunity of inviting uh, Lord Lovett, who was a Scot, but also the senior commando of World War II to speak at our banquet. And he told me later that uh, Lovett sat there at the head table and he listened to the room full of people. And finally he turned to, to Larry and he said, uh, the men that are here tonight, are these the same men that served in your unit, Special Service Force? And Larry said, yes, we're all veterans of the force. And he said, you know, there's a feeling in the air that's different from any other organization, including the commandos. He said, if that same spirit existed in the Special Service Force, it was truly a remarkable unit. And that's the esprit de corps. The spirit is what has kept us going. I like to think that, that bringing Canadians and Americans together produced a new breed, working as closely as we did, a different kind of soldier. There was an energy there that uh, most other people who went to other units afterwards say there was nothing like that in any unit that uh, I was ever in. And Paul Adams, uh, who was our executive officer and, and later became a four-star general, told me one time, he said, I've been in great many organizations. I've run great many divisions and armies and so on. And they all have reunions. But the only reun reunion my wife and I ever want to go to is the force. Because it's different. That was World War II veteran Lieutenant Bill Story. The Devil's Brigade disbanded in 1944, and in 2013, the unit received the Congressional Gold Medal for its service. Lieutenant Story was inducted into the Special Forces Decade Association as a life member in 2015. He passed away in 2016 at the age of 94. Next time on Warriors in Their Own Words, we'll hear from Dr. John Heavey, who served as a battalion surgeon in Iraq. Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast to see this interview in your feed. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. It really helps other listeners find the show. This episode of Warriors in Their Own Words was brought to you by The Great Courses Plus. Try it for yourself. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash warriors for a free month. That link is in our show notes. Warriors in Their Own Words is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with The Honor Project. Our producer is Declan Roars. Senior producer is Isabel Robertson. Audio engineer is Dave Douglas. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Warriors in Their Own Words.
I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast.